Welcome back to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And today, I'm having a gas with Andrew Cheps. Trees, I want to hear all about it. Do you really? Yeah, I will yeah. tell you all about Honestly. it. Well, <laughs> this is this is through a program that the Woodland Trust has, um, where you can apply to plant woodland or hedging, and we've done both. Um, and they come and check out the site and say, yes, that would be amazing. You should plant lots and lots of trees. And they subsidize it. Uh, they pay 75% of the costs, which is amazing. So we had pallets and pallets of trees and tree protectors and stakes show up a couple months ago. And we've been putting them in. We put in 350 meters of hedging and we're putting in about 800 trees. Wow. Is this something that, um, uh, have you got anything you can direct people to if they want to get in on that? Uh, yeah, it's the Woodland Trust. It's called the More Woods um, program and the More Hedges program. So More yeah, woods. if you've got, there, there is a minimum, you know, amount of trees, like you can't, they're not going to help you out if you want to plant four trees in your backyard. But if you've got a big garden or like in this case, what it is, is we own a field that was agricultural, but the farmer stopped renting. It didn't want to plant it anymore. So we grassed it over and we're doing trees up one end of it. So. It sounds perfect. How long have you been living where you're currently living? Uh, we've been here. How long have we been here? We've been in England for about six years. We've been in this house three years, three and a half, something like that. I, we took once we bought it. It took a year working on it before we could actually move in. So I get very confused as to how long we've actually been here. That does happen. I was very naive when I I bought my first house uh, last summer, and I said, "It well, in two weeks, I'll have done everything I need to do." And yeah, of course, you're still going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, um, but that's part. I remember last time we. It, it surprised me to learn that you know you fell in love and moved to England uh, for, for you know for love. And um, was that uh, was that a sort of a, a spontaneous moment in your life, or had it been, had you been together a long time and thought now let's do it? Oh no, no. We we met in 1989 in London when I was living here the first time, and then she moved back to California with me. And we lived in LA for 25 years. And then, uh, but we've been coming back and forth and visiting this area the entire time because bringing the kids to see their grandparents and things like that. So we knew lots of people in the area. And then uh, some stuff happened and it just made sense to, we'd been coming over every year for sort of longer and longer and longer each trip. And then we just decided let's not go back. And so yeah, we yeah. moved, but it was the most painless friction-free move ever. We just kind of showed up. And then once we decided we were actually doing it, we went back to LA for about three months, packed up the house, loaded a shipping container with all the gear and all of our stuff and moved. And here now, we are. You know what um, British people are like with self-deprecation and with um, you know bad-mouthing our weather and our culture. A lot of people would say, why move from LA to here? And is it the same as when you live anywhere for a long time? you know, novelty is good. Yeah, part of it is, um, yeah, we've been there 25 years. Uh, another part of it was we had a really cool house, loved our house, had a studio, you know, that part was good, but we didn't love the neighborhood we were in um, and we couldn't afford to move within LA. Like that was just never going to happen. So we knew we were like, we were going to be staying where we were, which we weren't thrilled with. And we'd been there a long time and it's really, really hot there a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, you can make fun of this weather, but like, there's barely been a frost this winter. The winter's been amazing. Um, half of it has felt like spring other than the four days of gales we just had. Um, but yeah, and I grew up in New York, so I'm used to seasons. I kind of like it. So, you know, the, the winters with it being dark all the time, I don't have the, oh, it's just cozy thing. I mean, like I, I kind of miss it a little bit, but there's nothing better than when there's no plague and you can go to a pub that has a fire going and it's dark out and it's early and you have a pint. like there, what is more welcoming than the sign of a, a busy pub from the outside? You know, the look of that. It's nothing. There's nothing yeah. better than that. Absolutely. But um, I, I do know... Um 
I mean, you said you, you came from New York and the seasons are obviously very hard there. They shift, you know, incredibly hot, incredibly cold. And by comparison, I remember I went to see Billy Joel at Old Trafford here in Manchester. And it was in the summer, of course, middle of June. And like half nine, it's still very, very light. And, and Billy goes, you know, when does it get dark around here? You know, because uh, in New York, it kind of goes dark at about nine. But um, but yeah, I... Um, rambling about weather there and preposterous things to be talking to renowned experts well, it's, about it's what english people talk about and i'm now a citizen since the last time we spoke so i can i'm allowed to just talk about the weather all day welcome aboard um, how's that how's that been that transition uh well i mean it's hardly a transition i went from having a, a temporary visa to a permanent visa and just decided it was easier to actually just get the passport than be traveling on an expired U.S. passport that had the original visa plus a card plus the. So I went ahead and did the citizenship. But once I'd already done my indefinite leave to remain, as they call it, um, it was almost exactly the same application again, just a bunch more money to get the citizenship. Very painless. But it's, you know, it takes a lot of time. You've got to catalog every single time you've left the country since you became resident and it's whatever it's, it's some paperwork. I had to do the, uh, the life in the UK test, which, you know, we, when I was studying for it, I'd bring the book to the pub. No one in the pub knew any of that stuff. Yeah. Like you've got to know all of the Olympic medal winners. Cause they might ask you about one of them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. The detail that might come up on this test. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, I remember you saying last time that, you know, the, the, the kind of things that they ask you to remember and the kind of things that uh, you're going to be quizzed about, um, of course, shed the the nation of new residents in a very bright light. It's yes. all very flattering, isn't it? Yes, I think we, we talked about the references to slavery. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, uh, one more thing on um, LA before we uh, jump around even further, because uh, I was interested when you were saying, it, it, it struck me and it may struck a few of our listeners and viewers because... As you know, you know, when you turn up on the podcast, the views just go up. People will be saying, I want to be the next Andrew Sheps, but even Andrew Sheps can't afford to move around LA. Do you have to be Rick Rubin in or, or you know, Anthony Kiedis? Is, is it really that priced out? No, no, it's more, it's just more that like, if you want to move within LA, presumably you want to move to a nicer neighborhood or, you know, somewhere like that. So obviously whatever you are living in is not going to be worth the thing you want to live in. So you either have to stockpile a bunch of cash or go into even more debt. And I mean, you know, we could have figured out a way to move within LA, but it just, it just didn't make sense. And we were ready to go. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so many happy years here in the UK, let's hope. Um, but you, you mentioned both in emails and just now that, you know, you're still taking the COVID thing quite seriously. You're still staying yeah. like hunkered down. Uh, what, what's informed that decision? Because, you know, you're now under the um, stewardship of my government and they're quite laissez-faire about this stuff. Yes, apparently it's all over and we have nothing to worry about. Um, look, it, it's just general caution. And I think the the difference for me compared to a lot of people is I'm incredibly lucky that I don't have to leave the house. I've been working at home for 30 years now. Like that, I've, I always work at home. So when you don't have to go anywhere, it's a very different equation to figure out, should you go? And I, my wife is very cautious with it. And obviously you can't make independent decisions. If one of you goes somewhere, it's as if you both went. So yes, yes. you can't just say, well, I'm going to go to the pub. You don't have to come. Don't worry about it. It's like, well, if I go to the pub, then I'm going to have to isolate within my own house to make it as if it was only me. So just all of that added up to, to just, you know, locking down and just waiting for things to calm down. And, and to be fair, stuff calmed down before Omicron started enough that we had just started kind of venturing out a little bit. And we're sort of at that spot now with Omicron because we know lots and lots of people who've had it, but nobody who is vaccinated who's had it seriously. So I may go to the pub this week. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll all um, we'll watch with bated breath to see if um, yes, I Andrew really Shep's. would love to go to the pub. Yeah, um, and I'm I, yeah. I imagine your part of the world, the pub, is just the the real experience. You know, I'm in a city; it, it comes and goes. But it sounds like you're in the classical countryside sort of setting, and it's all perfect. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know about perfect, but yeah, the, the pubs around here are very much country pubs when you're yeah. out in the country. Yeah, no so, question. Uh, just briefly on the um, COVID thing, where do you go for your info? Because obviously the um, implication is that you don't go to just buy government advice. Do you go and listen to anyone? Do you go to any, you know, um, yeah, where do you go for your info? I mean, I, I, could, I think like everybody, I look far and wide and just sort of look at things. But to be honest, the thing that I trust the most, only because it's sort of empirical, is the numbers that The Guardian publishes each day and just those trends. And that's it. It's like, it doesn't matter how safe people say it is if there are 80,000 cases a day. Like, well, I don't need to be one of those 80,000. But now that we're back down to about 20,000 and the deaths are back in double digits instead of triple or even four digits. And the trend is very, very much what people said might happen, but nobody knows what will happen. So I just wait for it to happen. I, I just, you know, like I said, I'm really lucky I'm in a position where I don't have to go places. So I'm just taking advantage of that. And obviously, like everybody, I miss the interaction and all of the stuff there is to miss about it. But I haven't had to go to work elsewhere, which, you know, there's nobody luckier than me. I'm not pretending like, you know, I've made the right decision and no one should be leaving their house. I completely understand why so many people have been the whole time because they have to. So I just don't. But you're working from home and do you do, have you been doing sessions via Zoom or anything like that? Do you have artist liaison? I've done a couple, um, yeah, like a couple of tracking sessions where I'm on Zoom all day with audio movers and listening that way. But for the most part, I'm mixing and that's never been attended. I mean, you know, there were some records in LA where people would come at the end of each day, but even that kind of stopped. And every once in a while, people would come, once I was mixing in the box and was doing the whole record at once, they'd come at the end of the record for a day. But even yeah. that stopped because it's like it's messier. They're so used to listening where they listen that the notes are really focused and specific. And once they come in my studio and the speakers sound weird and like all this, the mixes where I would be working with a band and they were coming each day to work on each song. The first day they'd hear the Tannoys and they wouldn't get it. And like, oh, can you turn on the NS10s? And we listened to the NS10s. And so like by day three, they were used to the Tannoys, but then we'd go back to the first mix. And But it would always be, you'd have to go back because they'd get home and listen and say, oh, hey, I'm hearing something. Like, well, that's why I said, don't bother listening at my place. Like, there's no point. Yeah. So that's a really, uh, that's a big thing that's floored me a lot this year, which is the frame of reference changing when you switch rooms. And um, that even with, I don't know if you use the modern technology that do room correction, like Sonarworks and things like that. Yeah, I don't. That stuff always just sounds really processy to me. So, but that's just me. I mean, it sounds like very digital and like flattened. I don't know. I mean, you know, because it's not like they're using, from what I know of the technology and most of those things, there isn't a lot of phase shift. It's not like using a 60 band EQ. It's like this weird digital convolution, single band filter that does it. So it's as transparent as it's going to be. But I just learned my Tannoys. I learned the headphones I use. And now I've learned the PMC since I set up the Atmos rig. And so that's, I just know them. And my the things I double check on are things like I'll run the mixes through my iMac speakers because that makes it really obvious. If it doesn't sound good on those, it definitely is not going to work anywhere else. Yeah. So it it doesn't, yeah, the correction stuff just doesn't work for me. But I know for a lot of people, it makes a huge, huge difference. So I'm not advocating one way or the other. I just, it doesn't work for me. Well, this this breaks open the, there's, a, there's going to be a kind of theme I'm, I'm going to run at in a moment. And it's all to do with the kind of training you were, um, the kind of training that you benefited from and the way people figure things out on the fly now on YouTube and stuff. But something I have not heard you speak on, um, I'm sure you have at some point, is how obsessive do you get about your room setup, positioning, like walls, treatment, all of that stuff? I don't get obsessive at all. It just really bugs me until it feels like it's right. And some of that is just getting used to the room. Like you go into any new room and it just sounds crazy. And then two hours later, your brain's adjusted and figures stuff out because your brain is a huge part of how you hear things and what things sound like. And a lot of it is adjusting to the acoustic space you're in and, and things like that. So um, no, I'm I treat my rooms 
almost visually. I like look around the room and say, man, it would probably be better if I hang some carpet on the wall over there. And I do it. And it's like, I mean, you know, maybe it's actually not helping. I have no idea, but it's what I do. And it's always worked for me. My big thing for me when I'm mixing and I'm going to use speakers is I just want the room to be relatively dead, not completely dead, because that's a really weird environment to be in. But I don't want to hear the room. I don't want the room to sound great. Like that's Mm -hmm. a room you want to record drums in, not a room you want to listen to a mix in. So for me, I just want to hear my speakers. And I've always had speakers that I feel like when I can hear them properly, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I do know. I know the feeling of when I, because I, I work in this room all the time, not to nearly the same level. There's going to be people watching this on YouTube. It's like, why is he talking to chefs about this? But, you know, I, I got yeah. that. For, <laughs> I'm it's early the same for everybody, but it's the yeah. same for, and it, it's the same, it, you know, insert the, my pair of headphones for that entire set, like anything, whatever you're mixing on, you just need to know it. Yeah. Um, and do you, are there mix engineers out there who have to move from studio to studio? And if that happens, how do they, how do you get used to it? How do you quickly get yourself in there? Well, that's, that's the way it always used to be. You know, nobody had mix studios at home. I built my own room at home, like really early on for mixing because I was working on projects that couldn't afford to pay for studios. So I was mixing at home and that's just the way it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that used to always be the case. And so generally you'd have some speakers that you liked and either you'd carry them with you or people who mixed on NS10s, every studio had them, whatever. And then you would just bring, I mean, back in the day, you'd bring some CDs of stuff you knew, whether it was your stuff or someone else's stuff and you'd listen. And while listening, you know, you think you're sort of consciously making decisions, but you're not. What's happening is your brain is acclimating and saying, okay, that's what that sounds like. I know exactly what it's supposed to sound like. That's what it sounds like here. Cool. So you have that. But that's also why everybody used to check mixes in their car because that was the same no matter where they were mixing. Right, right. So a familiar environment, it's like you have to basically put your brain in a little sort of vat and get used to, you know, I know this music, I know what it should sound like. And you just get used to what that sounds like coming in this environment. Yeah. Right. We had a lot of um, people noticing in the comments last time you were on and I, um, uh, I never got a chance to ask about it. What's going on with this modular rack? <laughs> well, there's nothing going on with it right now. It's off. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's a big modular synth. It's basically the only gear I have left because um, everything else is pretty much gone other than speakers. But yeah, it's my modular rig. I've been building it for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, something like that. I got. I mean, I've always been a geek about it at Miami when I was going to college. They had a great, I believe it was a Moog. It was either Moog or Oberheim Modular. I can't even remember what it was, but it was really cool. And I took a modular synthesis class to play with that for a semester. I've always been into it and kind of the problem with it is it's this huge black hole. I mean, you see the size of that system. It's like, well, where do you start? You can start with a very small system. There are a lot of really great sort of all-in-one synth voice modules. And you can you can start small, but I put it off and put it off and put it off. And then when I did the first record that I worked on with the Chili Peppers, I spent weeks with John Frusciante just doing overdubs. And we were doing a lot of treatments through his modular. And I just thought, okay, I have to do this now. And so I found on eBay, there was a sound designer in Santa Monica, a guy who did film sound design, who had put together a rig, almost exclusively uh, for modules, and he was going to sell it. And so it's like, okay, there's my starter system. Because for half price, I got about, probably about a third of what's back there. And that got me started. And then it's just the worst money pit ever because there are so many amazing modules. But I've managed since coming to the UK, that kind of broke my gear habit for whatever reason, because everything's more expensive here. Probably that's part of it. Um, I've only bought two or three modules since I've been here, but it was the kind of thing where there's a place um, called uh, Analog Haven on the west side of LA that is amazing. And you could go down there and just try anything. And my wife would come with me and she'd bring a book and just sit in the corner and like, You're, we're going to dinner after this, right? Like, yes, yes. we And <laughs> just geek out. And it didn't matter what you did, you would spend at least $1,000. 
Do you get, um, when you go somewhere like that, do you get recognized? Do people go, hey, it's Andrew Sheps or? Not there, no, I don't think so. I mean, because no. that basically most of his, his business is uh, mail order. So they just right. have like this demo thing in the back. It wasn't, I mean, I used to get recognized towards the very end. Up My entire career up until the last couple of years I was in LA, nobody recognized me ever. Like, why would they? It's like YouTube it, that's done that. Yeah, it started to happen. And strangely, it was like at grocery stores, mostly. Yeah. Like Trader Joe's. Every single time we went to Trader Joe's the last year we lived in LA, there'd be someone who'd come up like, hey, man, you still at Punker Bad West? And like, wow, you know too much about me. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. But yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's really flattering and cool that anyone would care. But yeah, that that only started happening sort of the end. And it's over here, it's only happened a couple of times. And like in weird ways. Like I went to Brighton to meet with a band and got a call from someone else from Brighton who saw me like, what were you doing in Brighton? <laughs> Okay, (laughs) that made it feel a bit stalkerish. Yeah, but it's funny. But no, it doesn't really happen very much. I mean, look, within the community of you know engineers and up and coming engineers, I'm pretty visible because I make a point of being visible. I love doing podcasts. I love doing seminars, the interviews I've been doing on Mondays and all that kind of stuff. Um, But you know, in terms of the whole wide world, no. (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I imagine it was the case that before YouTube and possibly before Waves, you know, before we started doing, um, doing deals, pl- you know, plug-in sponsorships in the way that skaters did skate, you know, shoes in the 90s and stuff. I imagine mix engineers were pretty much expected, you are relegated to the shadows. Some producers will be famous, but not many. And then mix engineers almost, almost. Yeah, I mean, we were, you know, there were people who were famous among their peers. Like, man, I knew who Chad Blake was for years. I knew Daniel Lenoir. Like, you know, if you're reading Mix Magazine and REP and, the magazines, then yes, within our little community, there were definitely some rock stars and there still are. I mean, I can't believe when I get to talk to some of these people that I get to talk to them. I'm still a fangirl. Yeah. But yeah, but it's definitely not, you know, big picture famous. Well, it's funny on that, actually, uh, speaking of, because your your show is, um, what is it? Andrew talks to awesome, awesome people. people. Yeah. yeah. And just after we spoke to you last year, we had Bill Schnee, who had just spoken to you right. as well. Yeah. Right. Um, which was, of course, amazing because, I mean, someone like Schnee being so generous with his time and the kind of contact he's been in, you know, with uh, now historical, um, just legacy artists uh, uh, was amazing. But um, now there is this rich, there's, there's this rich wellspring on, you know, well, mostly YouTube of people who can now become very visible and do become very visible to young people. Like I'm not so young anymore. I'm 29, but you know, it's like the last 10 years is just spent for people like us watching YouTube obsessively. How do I, how do I compress a snare drum? There's surely only, you know, one way to do it. And yeah, yeah, that's uh, part of what, that was one of the sort of big questions I was going to go, go into with you, which is, um, what do what what effect do you think that has on the I'd say the, the 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 rate at which you can learn if you're you know not if you don't get the benefit of studio training and supervised training and you're just having to figure it out on the fly on YouTube? Yeah, it's look, it's hard because who are you learning from? Do they know what they're talking about? And you know, some of them do, and some of them don't. Like read Stefan who does the things as a puppet, which is just insane. But he's great, and he actually knows what he's doing, and he's really smart. And then there are other things where you like, wow, what did that guy just say? Like, I don't know. But, you know, there's also no wrong way to do anything. So it's not like, well, all right, now you know how to compress a snare wrong. Like, you don't. You know one way to do it. I think the only problem is that I don't, I hate the word tricks. You know, here are tricks for doing this. Like there are no tricks. They're just like, I mean, every once in a while, something I do will feel like a trick, but it's only because I've figured out how to exploit the technology in some really weird way that makes it do something for me that maybe someone else hadn't thought of. But that's not a trick. That's, you know, like if I could make a sandwich appear in front of me right now without having to actually go to the kitchen, that's a trick. 
compressing a snare drum. There are no tricks. It's just learning how to listen to stuff. So there's a lot of amazing content that is behind paywalls. Like I think Pure Mix and Mix of the Masters both have amazing libraries of stuff and very different libraries of stuff, but really great, deep resources to give you different points of view about stuff. And I think that's the main thing is anybody who's like, fuck, man, I'm mixing this thing and the snare is terrible. What do I do? Watch 10 videos. Don't just watch one. If the first one works for you and you try that thing and it's like, oh, perfect. Now it sounds like what I want it to sound like. Great. But otherwise, what you'll do is you'll do whatever they say to do in the video and then you'll stop listening because, well, I did what it said in the video and that's supposed to make my snare drum good. Yeah. And that's not going to work. So I think it's just you have to get to the point where you can teach yourself stuff. So you've got to know a lot and you've got to understand the tools, not just how somebody turned the knobs on the tools. And once you know that, then you can figure stuff out for yourself. But still, like I watch these videos. I watch everything Chad Blake does because I want to try and figure out how he's hearing things. Because that's the big deal. If you watch one of these videos and you screenshot every plugin that they use, your mix will still sound nothing like theirs. It's realizing like, okay, well, he reached for that at that point, but why did he reach for that? And how does it, how did it sound before and how did it sound after? And I think like, like one of the myths about, um, well, Chad, let's talk about Chad for a second. There's this sort of impression if you talk to people about, well, what did Chad's mixes sound like? And they'll say, oh, the low-fi, really cool distortion. But they'll all say, man, the low end is just, oh, it's fucking, he, there's not a lot of low end on his mixes. There really isn't. But what's there is awesome. But it's not like there's tons of sub and what, he does not do that at all. But the impression is that. So it's, it's trying to figure out how are these people listening? And once you can figure a little bit out about that, then you see how they react to things and what tools they reach for. And then you'll start to build something in your head, which will help you when you hear something you don't like to know like, oh, what tools could I use to make it more like something I do like? Because that's the gig. Yeah. I want to pick up on the low end thing you mentioned there as well, because that happens all the time um, in this studio and just in general. People go, yeah, it's a great tight, um, it's a great tight area of the mix. And um, I think the effect that you described there is actually very common. People assume there's lots of it if they like the sound of it. But it's something that um, something that uh, we in the studio learned by experimentation recently, and mostly just listening to stuff on Spotify and just a being is that I think that's actually very common. Is that would you say that's true? There isn't there isn't as much low end as you might be tempted to think in most you know like records and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think like here's a just off the top of my head. Here's a good example of a track to go check out to hear some amazing low end. It's the theme from Succession, which is. Oh, God, his, his name has flown out of my head. A fantastic film composer who I got to actually mix something for um, for the Cruella de Vil movie, but he, he scored that as well and supervised some of the songs. Really, really talented guy. But that theme song is one of the best distorted 808 basses I've ever heard in my life. But there's nothing else down there. Absolutely nothing else. Everything else is mid-range. So everything just gets out of the way of that. Completely out of the way. And you've got this bass that sounds like it's going to tear your speakers apart. And But yeah. it's because there's nothing else fighting it. And I'm not doesn't mean to say you got to high pass everything. I'm not trying to say like, oh, do that and your low end will be good. But like that has the sense of just being this gigantic wash of low end, but there's only one source for it and it's perfectly done. It is an amazing sounding thing. And it like just listening on the television, like it just makes me angry that I can't ever get anything to sound like that. <laughs> it's not, is it Nicholas Brittell? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, just a good name check there. Yeah, that's um, the, the bigger the bigger theme there as well is that it's uh, what you're doing when mixing is creating an illusion and trying to trick the brain into thinking something's going on. And um, the number of things that, again, like you said, if you don't explore far and wide, when you're just diving into the ocean of knowledge out there, 
um, that can elude you for years is insane. Um, we benefited a lot from watching Greg Scott, the House of Kush tutorials on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen him. I haven't actually. No, I love his plugins though. And he's yeah. a talented dude. Well, he's very good because he did the first tutorial I'd ever seen where he was not showing you a door and saying, watch this. But he was saying, you know, if you don't understand what compression does, let's play with the attack knob so you can hear how it shapes the transient. And suddenly that was the knowledge that had been missing for all these years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Pure Mix has got a lot of great videos just called How to Listen To. And then one of them is compression, one is reverb, one... It's great just to train you to understand what things sound like. Because again, it's just building this warehouse in your head of solutions to problems. Not how should I set the compressor? Well, who knows? It depends on what you want it to sound like and it depends on the source material. But when you hear the source material and you know you want it to sound like something, you should know, oh man, if I smash this thing with a really slow attack, I'll get the transient through, but then it'll do the crazy thing on the release, you know. Like that's the knowledge you have to have because you have to apply these things to different source material on every mix. It's um, uh, what uh, who's uh, forgive me, I'm blanking now. Who's the really fair uh, Pensado, Chris Pensado, yeah. uh, Dave Pensado, Dave Pensado. Yes, foolish of me to confuse him. Um, said, said this interesting thing. I think it was on his trailer for Mix with the Masters or something like that, saying that um, uh, he kind of in his mind's ear can hear what the mix should sound like and he just gets it towards that. Is, that. is that how you work? Do you feel that same sense? Yeah, I mean, I think every once in a while it's a sonic thing, but for me, it's the same process, but it's more like what I want sections of this song to feel like. It's not like necessarily a sonic thing. Sometimes it'll be like, oh, I want this to feel like this and oh man, I could do that with a delay or, you know, whatever. But generally it's not as concrete as that which is a shame because I will end up getting mixes to where I think like they feel amazing. And then when I can finally get some perspective on it, like, okay, yeah, it feels good, but it also sounds like it's in a box and it sounds like it's mono. Like, fuck, you know, so then I've got to address the sonics of it without destroying the feel that I've managed to create. And I get myself into that blind alley a lot. It happens yeah. all the time to me. But that's because I'm chasing the way I want to feel as a transition happens or when the solo hits or something like that. So how are you how are you distinguishing the feel and the sonics there? Do you mean that literally like an emotional, you want it to make you feel? Yeah, yeah. And obviously right. I can only do that with the sonics because that's what I have to work with. But yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, it's like, yeah, I want it to feel like a gut punch, yeah. you know, or whatever. So you get those moments of breakthrough where you know, you make you make a little move and you go, ah, that, that's what I was waiting for. Yeah, usually it's the other way around. Usually it's like, oh man, it was close and now it's gone. Okay. <laughs> like, what have I done? And do you get frustrated when you're mixing? Is it, do you, do you go into these sort of, uh, or, or do you, is, it, is, it, is it a light and breezy Zen process? Oh, it's definitely not light and breezy, but it's also because of the way I work. As soon as I'm starting to get frustrated, I just stop working on that mix and move on to something else. Yeah. I won't let myself sit there and beat my head against the wall unless there's something really specific I've got to get and I know it and it's time to just hunker down and do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is, this is interesting because um, I got into, I, 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 tr I got into this to become a musician and try and make music and produce and compose and do all the musical things. And here I am talking to a mix engineer about transient shaping and, and sonics. And that leads me into a big question that occurred to me when I was watching Get Back. Have you seen it? The Beatles oh, documentary? Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How did you feel about that? I absolutely loved it. The first episode made me nervous because it just reminded me of like a session going bad. And like, it, I, like I'm going to be responsible for the fact that they are not going to deliver this concert, you know, whatever. But once they got into Apple Studios, that is one of the most joyous things I've ever seen. And I would love it if they put out his initial 18-hour edit of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's palpable, isn't it? The frostiness of Twickenham Studios and the corporate interest versus just the the joy and exploration of being at being at yeah. Savile Row. But even even there, you know how lovely they were to each other, and you know, th there's this whole mythology about that era because of the way it was edited with for the first release. I mean, they made some drama in it and whatever, but to the point where. I can't remember where I saw this, but apparently both Paul and Ringo had said that they had kind of remembered it the way the original edit of Get Back was. And when they saw this, it reminded them like, oh, right. Yeah, it wasn't actually like that at all. You know, yeah. and the whole myth of Yoko breaking up the band came from that 
basically. And it's, it's so obvious that no one was breaking anything up. They're just ready to do some other shit. George was writing tons of songs, wanted to go make a solo record. Like, you know, that's just what was going on. But yeah, the joy in that was unbelievably great. For the benefit of the audience, when you say the first edit, you mean the 1970 release of the film that, or yes. whenever it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was one of the first things I was watching on YouTube in 2007 when I was 14, just this kind of cold, distant Twickenham studio footage. But um, but yes, the the new film um, did, it did it upended several of the narratives that we'd come to believe. And also the, what, what Paul and Ringo said, what you mentioned there, it's like kind of what happens in trials or in you know in the legal system where you can distort people's memory of the events by showing them certain evidence and Paul I saw him speak at um in London in November just gone and yeah he was saying that um it's it was it was it was reassuring that he wasn't actually the one that broke everything up and drove everyone to distraction which is good but the 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 essence of my question was this modern modern today musicians will get into it on a laptop doing stuff in a door and you notice watching certainly the Savile Row stuff that um, George Martin and Glyn Johns are entirely responsible for Sonics. They worry about that. The band haven't a care in the world about that. In fact, they didn't even know that their microphones pointing towards the PA system would be a problem. So their imagination was all in the composition of the music. Yeah. Um, do you think? Do you think that's having... Would you think that's having any effect or a detrimental effect on the, you know, the direction of travel for music, the fact that everyone thinks as a producer as well as as a composer? No, it's just different. I mean, it's just the evolution. Yeah, I I don't think any of it's bad. You know, I wouldn't want to be working on tape. I mean, plus, let's also stop for a second and just say how badass is Glenn Jones? Absolutely. Holy shit. And not just the clothes. Yeah. Like the thing that's astounding to me was while they're rehearsing and they've got the PA set up that you were talking about. So they're obviously driving the room and there's lots of spill everywhere and whatever. And the sounds are just gigantic and like, oh, amazing. They go up on the roof in the wind in the middle of winter and it sounds as good. Like, how? What? How the hell does that happen? Yeah. Glynn is, anyway, enough about that. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, what Glynn had to go through to kind of rebuild the studio within a studio to make it work and what a disaster that was. And the fact that you could show up with a laptop now and record it. Yeah, I mean, and there's no reason you can't get sounds like that. Like there are plugins of most of the gear he was using and the actual analog gear is not magic and full of unicorn shit like I'm sure we've talked about last time. And so... You know, Glenn could do that now. And I think it, it's just people realizing what is possible and striving to achieve it is the first thing, not lowering expectations, but also maybe for some of the musicians realizing when they need an engineer to help them. Like they're not going to be able to get it to sound the way they want it to sound all by themselves. And maybe they should collaborate on someone who's good at that part of it. Yeah, yeah, because... I wonder if that might be happening. Like some of the more talented people who, no, some more people with potential uh, of, of, of our age are getting distracted down a 10 year hole of trying to self produce, self mix, and self master everything. Um, when their, you know, their imagination might be mostly like musical, they might have a gift for melody and, you know, performance. And yeah, you know? I mean, I think what's good though is that there are producers who have a really strong vision for what they want their stuff to be. And they used to have to just give in and hope that they were going to get there with the producer and engineer they're working with. And now they can sit there forever and make it work. Like there's an artist who I've only come across recently named uh, Juana Molina, and she is amazing. And she puts her records together. And she'll have people come in and play, but she puts them together in digital performer and chopping up things. And she just sits in a room for 12, 14 hours, getting it to sound and feel like what she wants it to feel like. She's so obsessive and she would not be able to make those records if she was at the mercy of a regular traditional studio team and process. It just wouldn't happen. They would be totally different. Yeah. So there's um, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was kind of spinning a yarn that maybe there are people getting lost in the, in the ether. But of course, like you just were just saying, 
previously that would have happened just because of the sheer scarcity of opportunity and the amount of money that was needed just to get into the studio in the first place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there are going to be people who aren't good at doing their own stuff start to finish, but that's understandable. So that's when you realize you should collaborate. Who do you think the first person was who was like a bona fide uh, self-producer? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, because whatever I say, there'll be someone who did it 10 years before. Yeah, fair. So, yeah. yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you know, at the point where they were making Get Back, George already had a home studio, right? Yeah. The 8-track came from his place. So it's, yeah, there were that was already happening back then. And, you know, even back on Revolver, all the tape loops came, Paul brought them in in a little bag and they put them up. It's like, that wasn't all studio trickery. That was them at home on little tiny quarter inch machines running at three and seven eighths or whatever, you yeah, know, yeah. so that stuff's always been going on. And, you know, the Melvins were doing records themselves early on. Like it's, who knows? I, I have no idea where it started. We've been, we've been talking uh, a, lot, a, lot, a lot there about the, um, about the Beatles and something, uh, something occurred to me the other day that I thought I might, I might grill you about, which is when, um, the, when you get an elusive term that applies to an era, what does that mean sonically? So a really perhaps easy example would be in some, it just sounds really 70s. What do they mean in sonic terms? What does it sound to sound 70s versus 80s? Well, I mean, 70s, I think, would be the thuddy, dry drums, right? Um, that's a real 70s thing. But obviously not every 70s record was like that. Um, a lot of small guitar amps, you know, it wasn't all big marshals and stuff that's, I mean, there's some people who were doing that already, but I think a lot of combo, I mean, like, on again, get back. What is it? Two Fender Twins? Yeah. Like, okay, great. Yeah. And every guitar tone on that record. And look, just, I know go on and on and on about this, but you could talk for 18 hours about just the six hours we've seen easily the fact that they go up on the roof they do this concert it's total chaos they play every song twice they get shut down they come downstairs and like hey so what do you want to do like well let's get lunch and then come record the rest of the record and that's what they did the rest of the record was recorded in an afternoon mm. okay and yeah and it's and it's the stuff that lasts forever and yeah. yeah yeah and i think part of it is you know, to go back to the artist who can go down the rabbit hole and be obsessive and get stuck and whatever is to realize that sometimes, and obviously they worked on those songs for weeks and rehearsals and some of them been written years before, but sometimes there is this spontaneity of the, we're doing the song now and the starting over, like, hey, it's all written, but we haven't performed it yet. Not I played a demo of it and I kind of like the way that guitar feels. So I have to keep it like, well, maybe you should keep it because now you can when you might not have been able to before. You might not even have a recording of a demo, but it doesn't mean you should. Maybe sometimes like, hey, you got the song together. Now start it over. That's not necessarily a bad thing. No, I, 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 know, I know what you mean there because um, creativity is born of limitation, isn't it? It's when you have to think in outside the box because you have a box. And of course, in those sessions that you were describing, the box was, it has to be finished by this date. We have this many tracks on the console. You all have this many hands to play your instrument and we're doing a live take. And it didn't even occur to me until after the, the Get Back experience that just no, no, no fuss was made about that at all. The fact that it was all live takes all the way through start to finish yeah. performances. Which is what they had decided to do. But also, I think you can very clearly see the stress that that was causing them until the moment Billy Preston showed up. Yes. And when he showed up and they had a fifth musician, especially someone as talented as him, to take over the one instrument that they all play, but none of them really play so they could go back to their instruments. That was like, that's when the joy started to me. Yeah. Billy Preston walked in, smiled that smile, sat down and was a total badass. And they just went, this can happen now. Yeah, what was it? John shouts, you've given us a lift, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> and absolutely. And of, uh, of course... Um, yeah, it's, 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 um, 
it, it, it spins out many questions, didn't it? That's just like, were we about to see another era of Beatles where there was a keyboard player all the time or whatever? But uh, yeah, and it's also clear that, you know, that we've, we've been brought up on this diet of it was all um, acrimonious and everyone was falling out and it was a terrible session. But actually, they were having a fine time of it. And it looks yeah. like they maybe just needed a bit of a break. Um, which maybe is what the 70s was. And of course, if we hadn't had the tragic loss of John, who knows what might have happened after that? Well, exactly. But also, like, well, why would they necessarily continue? They'd been making yeah. records for 10 years, which in terms of the number of records they made, that's like 30 years in modern band length. And creatively, they were getting to the point where like George had his own thing and he wasn't even sure if the songs were good for the Beatles or for him. And like, it's just a... They'd already done it. Like, in, okay, you could be more like Kiss and all put out solo albums dedicated to each other and then still make Kiss records. Or you can be the Beatles and say, well, we're all going to just go do our own thing. And I think that they were still so culturally important, though, that people needed a story as to why it had happened. Because, I mean, it was devastating to so many people that the Beatles wouldn't be the Beatles anymore. To the point where that was probably more devastating to some people than John being shot. Like, because the Beatles didn't exist anymore and somehow that's going to destroy everybody's lives and, you know, the world will stop turning. But yeah, they were just, it was just time. Do you think um, music, pop, pop music in particular, was more, imp- it's a big question, but do you think it was more important to people then than it is now? Like, you know, you won't see anything, you'll see occasional flashes, but you'll see nothing on the level of Beatlemania. Um, I think I think that that music is as important to individual people as it ever has been, but you just have so much more music. And every once in a while, there'll be a Billie Eilish or like Lord's first record or something like that where you seem to coalesce, I mean, in Garth Brooks, if you go back some years before that, you coalesce this gigantic audience instead of just a rabid audience. But I mean, for like Megadeth fans, Megadeth means as much to them as the Beatles ever meant to Beatles fans. Like there's no difference in terms of the individual impact that music has. No, yeah, and it's and it's merely the what the diversity of what's on offer that that will probably repress any individual artist getting to that kind of level because you know the because the Beatles and the Stones and you know what was happening at that time the you know that that new age of bands that just seemed so exciting it never happened before twenty years ago there was a war on you know whereas now twenty years ago was two thousand and two that's insane. Yeah. So, and it is. Some people have commented though that culture seems to have like slowed down. I don't know if this re- um, re- reflects your experience, but um, someone, um, a good friend of ours in the advertising industry, he said when we saw Quadrophenia in 1970, uh, 80, 79, and it was about 1964, so 15 years had passed, but it felt like watching a period drama. It felt so long ago and so much had changed. Whereas, you know, now I could have won this 20 years ago and, you know, I can listen to the same music as my parents might have listened to, and there's no there's no big divide. What, what what do you think about just the pace of cultural change? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because you could argue the other way that it's just going so fast that things are cycling back around when they've only been out of fashion for two years instead of 20 years or, or something like that. But I think it's also, like, think about pre-pandemic versus now. Yeah. yeah. It's a different universe. You yeah. cannot have the same frame of reference now than you did. And that is cultural and in the arts as well as just in the day-to-day life and how it's affected people and whatever. You, it, it has changed absolutely everything. Yeah, in the same, yes, in the way that we opened this, you said, I've always worked from home, which carried underneath it the sentence, now everyone works from home. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah. And or, the fact know, that I've been, I've been able to maintain some normalcy for me, whereas for everybody else, it was as far from normal as possible. And it was very far from normal for me. I mean, I was traveling constantly before it hit. And I think we talked about it last time. For me, part of it was actually a little bit of a relief. I could say no to some stuff and not go, which is good because I was spending so much time going around because I didn't ever want to say no. Someone wanted me to come do something like, God, I'm so flattered. Like, yes, of course I'll do that. Now I'm carving out an hour and whatever on Zoom instead of it's an entire day staying overnight and yeah and that kind of thing. So yeah, but it it has absolutely changed everything. And 
I feel like the, like, to go back to the question about can it be as important as the Beatles, the thing about having something that is as popular as that to a large percentage of the population is it can seem to have a larger impact on things outside of the art. Whereas now, I truly believe that people are impacted as deeply, if not more, by music, but it's a much more personal and not shared experience. To the point, even like at music schools, you go and there's cafeteria and everybody is in there working on stuff in headphones and they never collaborate and no one ever hears anyone else's stuff. And this is what you see when you go and do talks and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Because what's also happening, I think as well, is that I'm 29, so I'm just getting to an age where you start to go, is everything, was it better when it was before? You know, and uh, maybe at a certain age you go, nah, it's all fine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, you could always find something that might have been better, but there's also plenty of stuff that's worse. Yes. Well, um, let's let's talk about new stuff. Have you been involved in New Chili Peppers? No. No, I haven't. Well, um, I was quick. What, what, what do you mean? That topic, we're done, you know, done with that. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Um, I suppose, um, what was the last thing you were involved on? Was it Stadium Arcadium or were you doing I'm With You? No, I did I'm With You and all the B-sides for I'm With You. And then I worked with the band while they were writing songs for what became the album after that, but I didn't work on the actual album. No. Well, we've got... we've. Me and all, uh, everyone I know, we've got tickets to see them this summer. So, uh, you know, I Great. think we're, we're all just, dr- we're, we're so, so thrilled to be able to get up close to the the lineup we all fell in love with, with John Frusciante. No disrespect to Josh. So we'll see how that goes. But you've not been involved in that. What about Adele, the new Adele album? No, no, nothing. No. So what's going on with Low Raw during, you know, last few, last year? Well, we put out a record which I think is really, really, really good. The fifth uh, full-length record. I love it, called Maybe Tomorrow. Um, But of course, he hasn't been able to tour it or anything like that. So he's still been writing. Ryan's writing. There might be another EP or an album, but we're not really sure where it's going. It's just everything's kind of on hold. So, But one thing, which is actually really cool, uh, have you heard about this uh, animated film Flea, which is... Yeah, so just nominated for three Oscars, like the first thing to be nominated for Best Documentary and Best Foreign Feature, Foreign Language Feature, and blah, blah, blah. But that has two Laura songs in it that we licensed to him. It feels like forever ago, absolutely forever ago. So that's really exciting to see something, because it's, it's important. It's yeah. an important film, and that we are, you know, this tiny little part of it, that's pretty cool. Do you think that's the uh, Hideo Kojima effect? I don't remember what order things happened in. So yeah, I mean, so many people just became aware of the music because of Death Stranding. So it could well have, you know, put put it on their radar for that. But yeah, I don't know. Okay. And um, yes, I'm sort of doing, doing a little uh, topic skim here because I occasionally remember things, notice things, and I've forgotten to ask. It looks like your speaker setup has changed a little bit since the last time I spoke to you. There's two huge things in the back or if I'm... Not yeah, no, no, no. They're they're not that big. Um, but yes, I am. I can't remember if I'd set up last time or not. But I am now fully set up for mixing in Atmos. So I have a nine one four PMC speaker system that I am very happy with. Right. I spoke to. Do you know Elliot Shiner? Yes, very yeah. well. Yeah, he he came on uh, the podcast. He was delightful. Everyone loved him. Um, uh, but he was he had some he had some remarks about about Atmos about Dolby I think specifically to do with the you know the Apple deal and the fact that everything was now going to be an Atmos but um, I, I want to hear your take what's the uh, lights just came on what's the difference have you is it a long learning curve to get from stereo to Atmos or it's Yes, it's it's a very different way of thinking about mixing. And the only way that I make it work right now is even if I have done the stereo mix of the thing I'm about to do an Atmos mix on, I will print stems so that I am no longer making sonic decisions. I'm just making Atmos decisions. I'm making, you know, soundscape and placement and size and movement decisions, but I'm not like, oh my God, have I just messed up the drums? Like, I don't want to have those two things going on simultaneously. Right. So it's mostly, uh, so, so it's like the, but the bulk of 
not the bullet, but the heavy lifting is done in stereo. And then after that, it's kind of a placement thing of just putting... Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the stereo mix is still... That's the reference. Yeah. There are very few people doing... Like, like there are a couple of people I know who are actually mixing an Atmos and then making the stereo from that, but that's not the way most people are still doing it. It could well be that that's the way it goes in the future, but you know, I have no idea. But at the moment, for me, I just—it's too much to think about, and it, it's—I'm so used to making the sonics work by ramming all that stuff down two channels that I kind of want to just lock that in and now see. Does it fall apart when I spread it out, but not have the sort of creating that sound at the same time happening? Because it's just too much to think about. So I lock in the sonics and then I can move stuff around. I can change it and whatever. But at the moment, you're always trying to honor the stereo mix. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so how does Atmos differ from 5.1? 5.1 is six discrete channels of audio. You have a left a center, a right, stereo surrounds, and a subwoofer. If you listen to that on a system that doesn't have a center speaker, then you don't hear the center information. It's just like, it's, it's like stereo. Stereo is a two-channel format. 5.1 is a six-channel format, but each channel calls for a speaker to play it back out of. Whereas Atmos is object-based monitoring. So it assumes that it's like the basic setup would be seven speakers around you in a circle, subwoofer, and then four speakers above you if you can, but maybe just two speakers above you. But when you pan something, it's a playback time decision to say, hey, what's your speaker setup? Oh, okay, you ha- only have those speakers. Well, then the way I'm going to be able to make it seem like that thing is coming out over there is to put this much in that speaker and this much in that speaker. So the actual playback and how much is going into what speakers is dependent upon the playback system. The decoding happens when you hit play in your room. It's not someone deciding this is the left channel information. Okay, so is Atmos potentially more flexible to different playback systems? Yes, absolutely. So if you go get a sound bar, a lot of them are Atmos enabled. So what it means is really you only get left, center, right out of it, but a lot of them have like extra tweeters that are bouncing off walls and they, it's not going to sound like it's coming from behind you unless you have a speaker behind you. It's not really going to sound like it's above you unless there's a speaker up there, but it sounds a hell of a lot more something than if it were just left, center, right. So yeah, it's it's an abstracted monitor format, which is... Mm-hmm. It's a technical thing, but that's the deal. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, because I was always, I was always curious when they, just thinking about when I started getting into you know panning, placement, distance, transients, all that, and thinking, how can I make something sound like it's actually coming from behind me? And then I, I suppose I realized, well, these are just two speakers going in that way. Every, uh, everything's an illusion at that point. You're trying to sort of. Yeah, construct an artificial space. Yeah, but think about the fact that even on headphones, you think stuff is in the center. Yeah. That's completely made up. It's only because it goes to both ears at the same time, sounding the same. So therefore, it must be coming from in front of you. Yeah. This gets back to the illusion business. Yeah, Yeah. it's all illusion. So, But you can quantify that illusion by saying you have an anechoic signal traveling from the left and the right speaker that meet at your head. Your head is shaped a certain way. Your ear canal does certain stuff. The reflections are different. So... Okay, now what happens to that thing coming from the left speaker when it comes around and gets into your right ear? It's how much later than it was in the left ear. What's happening to the high-frequency response? What's happening to the mid-range? Okay, now let's say you get a first reflection from that left speaker into your right ear. What does that sound like? And this is all physics, right? But then on top of that, you've got the neurological, physiological part of what your brain does with all of that information. And then you use all of that to try and trick things. Like there have been sort of binaural processes forever. There is something called the pan scan, which was a panner in 80s, I'm assuming, um, which didn't just go left to right. It said it was going in a circle. And so it did weird phase stuff as it passed behind you. And in the headphones, it would actually sound a little bit like it was going behind you because it was different than just the phantom center when it was front center when it was rear center, it was actually different. So that stuff's been around forever. 
And it's just utilizing that technology to render on the fly, either in speakers or in headphones to try and recreate the sound field. Yeah. Which, which leads us not, and this might be a good, uh, good point to end on, uh, cause yeah, it's half six. So we've done a good hour there. Um, is that you're an advocate or yeah, you're known for, forgive me. <coughs> you're known for your, um, willingness to mix on headphones. Yeah. And, um, you know, that seems to, to to me, I mean, in here, we'd be arguing with, you know, the, the founding partners saying, you can't mix on headphones. It has to be in a perfect room with perfect speakers. But that apparently is not the case. No, most people don't have perfect speakers and certainly most people don't have perfect rooms and most people don't have perfect hearing. Yeah. So it's all a bit of a myth. It, it's that you hear stuff in a way wherever you're mixing, whatever you're mixing on, that will translate to other playback systems. It doesn't matter what your playback system is. It matters, does it sound right on other people's playback systems? Because if you said, well, you can't mix unless you're in perfect speakers in a perfect room, does that mean people can't listen to it unless they have perfect speakers in a perfect room? Because if that's the case, your mix probably sucks because it doesn't work anywhere that anybody actually listens to stuff. And that's Part of why I have no problem mixing in headphones, if it didn't translate, then I wouldn't do it. But it does because I've learned to do it. Um, But also, going back to the Atmos, obviously I would love everybody to have lots and lots of speakers wherever they listen to these Atmos mixes. But the reality is 99% (laughs) of it probably is on headphones that people are listening. And so they're getting a binaural representation and there are two different versions of it. There's the Dolby version and the Apple version, and we're not going to go into any of that. But the idea is to take what is supposed to be coming out of lots of speakers and figure out how to make it sound like you're in a room with lots of speakers when you listen on headphones. And since that's the case, you would be remiss if you didn't do some work on your Atmos mixes and headphones. You have to, to make sure that what you're hearing in the room is actually translating through these binaural processes and sounds like you want it to sound. So yeah, it's a big, big part of it. Well, that's um, hopefully a bit of encouragement for any, um, well, if anyone's watching who's a just starting out bedroom producer and was about to think as I once did, well, you need, you know, yeah, big tannoys in a big, perfect room. No, I mean, in, and for Atmos, like you just try it on headphones. I mean, you want to get into a room and hear it on speakers at some point if you can, but there's no reason. I mean, it's all built into Logic now. It integrates really well with Adobe Renderer and Pro Tools. I think Nuendo has it completely built in. Mess around with it. You know, try it. It's there. It's not, yeah. It's not off limits. No. And in the way that it would have been in like 1972, being able to learn any of this stuff. Yeah. And I think though, in a way, it's weird to me because it is, like, it's very technical. There are things you have to understand and know. You can't just luck yourself into an Atmos mix. You got to understand what you're doing. You have to deal with certain volume limitations and like there's stuff you need to know to make it work. And other stuff you need to know to actually make it work well. And all of a sudden, we're back to the point where like, wow, mix engineers actually need to like know stuff. So now it isn't just everybody on the planet with a laptop and a pair of headphones does exactly the same thing I do and sometimes better. I actually feel like I've got a little bit of an edge because I'm such a technical geek and I sold an EVE console so I could afford some speakers and, you know, so yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't have the same barrier to entry like we were talking about forever ago about getting into a studio to make a record. But I think to be successful and do commercial Atmos mixes, most people are going to need to actually invest in equipment and time. But I'm sure there are going to be some savants who do it on headphones and it is fucking awesome and better than anything I can do. And that's it because that's always the case. Can you um, name, as a sort of closing statement, maybe, uh, any of those kind of savants that you were just mentioning where you think, how have they done this? All they've got is a really crap laptop and they've done this amazing thing. Well, I don't know about crap laptop, but Hmm. I would say like Juana Molina, her records are amazing. And as far as I know, there's one that someone else mixed, but she does everything herself in Digital Performer. I don't know what her studio setup is other than that. I just watched a couple interviews because I got obsessed because they're so good. Um, 
but uh, the first Latin Playboys record, which I think for a lot of engineers is like a real benchmark of the Chad Blake distorted things, whatever. He doesn't take enough credit for the way that record sounds because it obviously sounds the way it does because of him. But huge chunks of that record were done on a horribly broken cassette four track in Louis' kitchen. Like that's where that record started and they didn't replace stuff. They just added to it. And like one of the ways Chad dealt with how noisy a lot of the recordings were would be to actually add noise. Just like, well, I can't fix what's there. So I'm going to add so much noise that the noise that's coming and going on that thing won't bother you and (coughs) that kind of thing. So I think like, you know, it's one of the coolest sounding records ever made. And it was finished in a studio with an API and whatever, but it absolutely is a four track cassette record. That's really something that keeps coming back now, uh, coming back to me now, which is that um, you can obsess over some things that, you know, mentioning an API made me think that we, you know, we used to think this sounds good. How did they conceive of something sounding that good? How did they make it sound that perfect? And um, often I think, and I hope this is true in your experience, what happens is, you know, people make stuff in a creative and exploratory way and then it propagates and then, you know, it becomes popular and then you think all of that was a conscious decision. And a lot of it, you know, might not be if you say like, how did, I don't know, how did the, you know, electric piano sounds so good on Let It Be for the sake of argument. And it's like, well, they weren't thinking that hard about that. They were thinking about the music and now you're just used to it and you have that experience of it. Yeah. Well, look, what makes the sounds on a record great are the way they work together. And what's great about the electric piano sounds on those records is how everything else works with it. It just works perfectly with it. It's about the balance and it's about the way the sounds go together. And that is Glyn John's brilliance for his entire career. Al Schmidt's brilliance for his entire career. It's about the balance and the way the sounds work together, not that is the best kick drum sound ever, like empirically. And if I solo it, it will be the best kick drum sound ever. It's like, man, those drums are just on fire. And in some cases, it will be the sound, like when the levee breaks, it's about the drum sound. But it's really easy to get a drum sound like that. And then none of the other instruments actually work with it because the drums are so huge and it just sounds terrible and everything falls apart. Their genius is arranging that song and getting guitar tones that work with those drums. So that's a great point to jump off on uh, for Andrew Sheps. It's, it's, you know, it's not about, it, it's like cooking, isn't it? It's about what goes together as opposed to each individual thing. And, yes, and, and absolutely. And if you find yourself obsessing about an individual thing, you've lost the plot. You need to like stop doing that and just zoom out a little bit and see what's going on. We're going to get that put on the wall in these studios. Um, <laughs> you so got thanks. a lot of words up there already, man. Uh, well, on this one, yeah. So it's a bit overbranded, but yeah. Um, thanks for taking the time again. Um, thanks for Absolutely. planting the trees. Uh, I hope you manage to get to the pub at some point. And um, yeah, uh, I'll look forward to the next one. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Andrew. Bye now. <laughs>